You're listening to A Show of Hearts, the podcast about finding the courage to live a deep and magical life. I'm your host, life coach, Rosemary Pritzker. Priya Darshini is a Brooklyn-based singer, ultramarathon runner, and pediatric cancer philanthropist who was born and raised in Bombay, India. Her roots are in Indian classical music, but she has influences from all over the world. She belongs to several bands that mix genres, cultures, and languages, including the Epichorus, the Karsh Kale Ensemble, and she recently started the Priya Darshini Trio. She co-leads Women's Raga Massive, with whom she co-produces a festival called Out of the Woods, now in its third year. Priya also occasionally sits in with her husband Max's band, House of Waters, in which every member of the group is from a different country. In February, she teamed up with them at a house concert at my home in Miami, which was an extraordinary, intimate evening. Towards the end of this episode, you'll hear a clip of her from that night, singing a song in Hindi. As you'll experience, her otherworldly voice is multifaceted, pure, and heartfelt. I hope you enjoy her singing, her life story, and her reflections as much as I do. For now, we'll start with Priya with the Epichorus, singing a song in Hebrew called Odecha. When someone talks about following the heart, what does that evoke for you? What does that evoke for me? You know, oftentimes when someone says, follow your heart, as I'm getting older, the first thing my brain says is, oh, but you also have to be practical, right? And um, I didn't really think like that when I was much younger. (laughs) When I was younger, I just did anything that I wanted to. And I just had this this complete confidence. It felt like I had the world ahead of me and, you know, the entire world was, I, I, you know, it was available for me to explore and anything was possible. And uh, I just did all of that. Uh, and so when someone says that to me now, you know, I do have that extra, like, this thing in my brain that says, mm, but, you know, yes, follow your heart, but also... Make sure that you're making practical moves. But I often go back and tell myself that, hey, but you know what? You're here today because you followed your heart all your life. So don't forget that and you're going to be fine. 
yeah, it's, it's both like, yeah, you really do need to follow your heart in order to, um, create a really wonderful life and you do have to be practical. So it's gotta be a balance. It has to be a balance. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. But I also think that, um, when you really, really, really want something very bad, the universe conspires to make it happen for you and you make that happen for yourself. And if it doesn't happen, you haven't wanted it bad enough. <laughs> I really believe that. Because when you really want something so bad, you, all your actions and your thoughts, all of that just follows what you want. And it just like everything starts to fall in place. Even if there are hurdles, when you're in that passionate mode of like really wanting something, hurdles seem so small. The biggest challenges seem small. And you feel really positive about it as well. But if you don't want it bad enough, then even the smallest of hurdles, smallest of challenges just start to feel much bigger. So I would love to know about your childhood in India, what that was like. <laughs> wow. You know, for those of us who've never been to India oh, and don't yeah. know, you know, how different it is. Oh, India is very, yeah. <laughs> very different yeah. from from any other part of the world, I would mm. say. It's um, it's hard to describe, actually. I've, I still struggle to find a word to describe what India is really like. and um, Because every part of India is so different and it's so diverse. There's so many languages, so many different types of cuisine. And, uh, you know, the, when they say Indian food in, the, in America or anywhere else, typically everyone's talking about Chicken tikka masala. Which is like from one, yeah, <laughs> from like, one state called Punjab. Like it's yeah. all from one state. But I'm saying every state has its own cuisine. And even within every state, there's like so many different versions of, of cuisines. And you can imagine like how, how diverse it is. I mean, if, if you try one dish every day of your life, I feel like you could go on for years and not repeat a single dish. <laughs> That's how diverse the cuisine is cuisine, language, all of that, like the, the, the kind of diversity that India offers, it just, it makes, it makes us a very unique type of person because you're exposed to so many different things and your approach to life and the world just changes. India is also very difficult. It's very difficult. I thought when I moved from Bombay to New York, everyone told me, oh, New York is going to be so rough. It's like, it's a big hustle. And when I, when I got to New York, I was like, oh, I know this. This is, I got this. <laughs> it's actually way more convenient. The train comes on time. I have to walk only two minutes for a subway. Are you kidding me? Like, that's awesome. <laughs> so the hustle is totally fine. I got it. I grew up in Bombay and I was born in Chennai in the south of India. And then I, I was in Pondicherry for about a couple, of year, uh, a couple of years and then moved to Bombay. And Bombay is, like I said, it's a lot like New York. It's almost like New York on steroids or something. Uh, it's crazy. But also it has this, this incredible energy about it. People are so positive about everything, which, which I'm so glad that I, I had. I mean, I'm so glad I had that influence in my life. You know, I used to go to school um, by train. I, I take a bus and then a train, like the local transport. And I don't know if you've seen those trains. It's crazy. People are hanging out of the train. There's no space to stand. Or <laughs> and I would take a bus and a train and then walk to school and... Even to college, I just, you know, I took these trains every day and 
and you'll see on these trains that the women especially, because it's such a patriarchal society still, unfortunately, uh, the women, you'd see that they're, like, these are now, these are women who are working, the middle class women are working because, you know, they have to, Bombay is also incredibly expensive. Some, like, if you go out to a restaurant, I almost spend more than I spend in New York for a, for a good meal. Yeah, you wouldn't believe. Uh, but yeah, Bombay can be very expensive, but you can also get meals very cheap. Um, but it's a lifestyle thing. So middle-class women have to work to support their families, but because it's so patriarchal, you know, they also have to do the cooking and the cleaning and things like that. But what I would find so inspiring is, like, none of these women, uh, you know, they're going to work, they'd come back from work, and on the way in the train, on the train, like, firstly, there's no space. We're all crowded and cramped like this. And they'd be chopping vegetables, like, and singing songs. And, like, they, ha they would have women's groups just, like, singing bhajans and, like, all kinds of kirtans and just movie songs playing this game called Antakshari where you sort of play, like, it's like a tag, tag thing that people play uh, with songs. Like, you, you sing, if you sing a song, then you, you, you immediately sing, uh, the other team sings a song from the last letter or something like that. Anyway, so they would just keep that, that joyous, positive energy alive while chopping vegetables. And I know for a fact that these women have woken up like at 5 a.m. getting their kids ready for school, uh, you know, cooking and make, getting their breakfast ready, making, packing lunch for the kids and their husbands, and then getting themselves ready, going to work on the way back, chopping all these vegetables and so that they can get home and make dinner for their, for their family again and then do that over again, all over again, every day. And just to see that kind of, that attitude is like, that, you know, that really, as uh, why I'm talking about this is this, it's just one example of what Bombay is like. And I've never seen anything like that anywhere in the world. Growing up in Bombay, what it taught me was I, I just don't complain about anything. I'm like, it's just, everything seems like a privilege. <laughs> so it's, you know, wow, you've got, this is a clean bathroom. That's amazing. <laughs> So, you know, it's uh, Bombay really check India checks your privilege in a lot of ways, uh, at least for me, because I, I didn't grow up rich or anything like that. So if yeah, that's a whole different scenario. The if you're rich, that's a different experience in India. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. And you, you did ask me how my life was growing up at home. That was very different because uh, I'm very, very grateful to have had the most inspiring, giving, generous, kind parents in the world. <laughs> we had a tiny, yeah, I think a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom, really tiny apartment. We weren't really that well-to-do. But my uh, my mother would bring in cancer patients that she found on the streets because this was even before we had a nonprofit organization. She just wanted to help in whatever way she could. And because we didn't have money, so she wanted to help like she wanted to serve that that was her way to help so service so she would bring home patients uh who were actually getting treatment and they didn't have any anywhere to live these are these were very 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 underprivileged uh people and underserved people and so she'd bring them home and we they just live with us i grew up like that she trained me and my sister to care for them and just share whatever we had so we i mean we didn't have a room or anything we're just like okay Here's someone now. They're going to be here for two weeks. So you're sleeping there in the kitchen or somewhere else in the living room. Like, sure, okay. So, and I didn't know there was a different kind of life until I started going to school. And like, 
we started talking about these things when I was older. I was like, oh, you, you don't live, you, you don't have strangers living in your home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my dad, dad, uh, he's really all about education for, for girls and for also education just for everybody. So he, even though he didn't, we didn't have much, he was funding so many kids, their education for years. And then eventually, um, you know, as I got trained more and more, uh, we were able to offer them a better place, not just our apartment. And we started a nonprofit. So now we, uh, it's called Jana Rakshita. And so since 2004, we've been able to do it in a much more organized, proper way. So we, we work in pediatric cancer, and now we're building schools, and especially focusing on Adivasi indigenous people. And we're building schools for them with a focus on girls. Now we're focused on pediatric cancer. Earlier it was just adults, adolescent, and pediatric cancer, and now it's, we're focused on pediatric cancer. How did you guys get focused on cancer in the first place? Firstly, cancer is such a difficult disease. It's so difficult, not just for the patient. It's difficult for the whole family. It is so taxing financially. It's a long, long, oftentimes, not in every case, of course, but uh, it's such a long disease in the sense like it takes years to, um, you know, for, for recovery. Oftentimes, it's also, it comes back. Um, and... How how this all started was my, uh, you know, there's there's a very uh, there's a really good hospital called Tata Cancer Hospital in Bombay, and it's one of its kind in all of Asia, and it offers really uh, it offers subsidized treatment, and uh, does not subsidize the quality of the treatment, you know, uh, which is why there's patients coming from all over the country, from Bangladesh, from everywhere, like all over Asia, the people come there, but that means that the hospital is overwhelmed with patients and there's no space, there's no beds, which is when like people, you know, when they're getting chemotherapy, for example, it's over a period of five, six weeks, maybe two weeks, whatever. A lot of these patients come from really remote parts of the country and they don't have the money to travel back and forth while undergoing treatment. They, they can't really even travel because it's so hard on, on, on their bodies. So they just sleep on the streets. And I've watched people like women give birth on the streets while their husband or someone is getting treatment and like they're all living on the streets. And that kind of thing is just, it's, it's insane. I've never seen anything like that anywhere else. And so my, mo my mother just started bringing them home. Mm. <laughs> I think that's how it all started. And uh, also her mother was a social worker. Her brothers are also social workers, the whole family. They're all beautiful people like that and are so giving. One of my um, skills was to be able to work with these kids in a very personal way, and I was able to communicate with them in a way that would really was 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 helpful. I was working on the field a lot, and now that I'm so far, I'm in New York, and it's been five or six years. It's really I, I'm not working on the field. I miss that because, you know, believe it or not, I, I got way more than than I was able to give. Like, it's always the case. Life made sense to me like that, you know? It was also the only kind of life I knew because I grew up like that. Uh, but now, you know, living in New York, it's been so hard. I'm not able to have that uh, personal connection with the kids, and uh, I know so many of the kids, and, you know, they, they've, they make that bond with you, and then they want to see you, and I, you know, I miss them. They miss me too. 
but yeah, from New York now I'm able to do a lot of other stuff, back end stuff, and I keep going back so I can keep helping with newer projects. This time when I was there, we just um, I just got back like last week. Uh, we adopted uh, another school. It's a government-run school in the middle of nowhere in Maharashtra. Like it has nothing. Just like I guess this is a really dilapidated building with just two rooms and there's like first second third in one classroom and the fourth and fifth in one classroom and they're all studying together they don't have water there's no electricity uh and there's the building might fall apart anytime uh, and yet these kids are so invested in their education they have such big dreams and it's they're probably more dedicated to their studies than most american kids you know what i yes <laughs> yes sorry american kids just i feel like um mostly a lot of them take their educations for granted because it's like this thing that everyone does and most American kids I feel like feel like school's a drag right (laughs) you know yeah I mean it is a privilege education is a privilege and these kids for them they're so hungry so hungry I you know I'd bring them books and by the next week they'd they would read every single book and they'd be able to answer every single thing. And they're hungry for, they'd be like, can you bring me that book? Can you bring me this book? Because, you know, and I'd be like, wow, you, you read all of it? Like these kids are quietly, like sometimes I'd hear nothing and I'd be like, wait, are there, is the school open? Are there kids inside? And you just go, I would walk in and every child is just so quiet and studying, like so well-disciplined. It just, it makes it so worth it. Often students in schools in underdeveloped areas face challenges that are so basic that something as simple and as complicated as a toilet can make the difference between dropping out and graduating. This is the case in many developing countries throughout the world. A lot of the girls would drop out after fifth or sixth grade when they would get their period. Because, you know, and all these kids walk like eight to ten kilometers. And this is jungle, like nothing is around so they walk 8 to 10 kilometers. It's not safe for the girls, firstly. And then they'd come to schools, and then there's no... They weren't... This particular school didn't have toilets. So there's no hygiene facilities. and how, So the girls started dropping out. And so we just constructed toilets. Something as simple as that. All the girls started coming back to school. <laughs> what is so interesting and fascinating about this is that the schools that we're, that we're working with they're literally about an hour and 15 minutes away from Bombay, like from the city. And you go to the city and like you'll find some of the wealthiest people in the entire world. The wealthiest people who have everything, right? And the economic disparity is so much. Like you have everything. And then you get out by one hour outside and they don't have electricity. You know, we, we want to bring in solar energy and solar panels and also try and see how we can... A lot of the Adivasi children, they're basically farmers. And now they're all... The farmer's suicide rate in India is insane. And, of course, it's the corporations that are coming in. Monsanto is has arrived. Um, so the small farmer is out. Well, I've heard that in India, a lot of them, why they're committing suicide is because they're like being forced to use yeah. pesticides that <laughs> yeah. they don't want to use. They don't want to use also uh, large scale production. They're not able to beat that. How can they beat that? They, they, and they, they don't have the wherewithal for any of that. And the, like I was saying, the Adivasis are also farmers and by law, they own the land, 
right, the indigenous peoples. But the corporations are finding ways to get around that. What if they die? <laughs> you know? Yes. So suddenly, you know, there's a highway they build through their village and all their cattle gets run over because it's like a, a highway through a village. Yeah. And the kids are walking across the highway in the middle of the night and they get killed. And then, you know, and then there's suddenly a huge industry that's being built in their backyard and it's it's chemicals are flowing through their rivers and no wonder they have cancer yeah boom (laughs) and not just that there's also other like horrific ways in which their land is being taken away from them so what we're also trying to do is we want to make them realize that being farmers being a farmer is one of the most important things and they need to be proud of it because i see that a lot of the Adivasi kids, they like, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a, an engineer. I want to be a doctor, which is great. I love that they have these big dreams. Like, what, but wh- what do your parents do? <clears throat> the farmers, uh, what do your parents want you to do? What would you actually like to do? It's like, I would love to work on the farm. This is all I know, but it's not going to bring me money. Uh, and so that's why they want to become engineers, oftentimes or doctors, and I'm like, wait, but you can be proud of who you are and you can continue doing that, but they don't want, they don't want to because they've seen what happens. So did you have any heroes or mentors besides your parents when you were growing up? Mm-hmm. So many, so many. My grandmother was uh, one of my biggest heroes. I have her name, actually. She was she's an incredible artist. She was a dancer, a Bharatanatyam dancer, and a Carnatic classical vocalist, and received this title called Nativeli Chandrika Priyadarshini, which is what you receive when you, you've excelled in a field. And she used to perform like two-hour performances on stage from when she was six or seven years old. And Bharatanatyam is a very difficult classical form and she would not only dance, but she'd also accompany herself singing while dancing. It's so, what? it's crazy. That's yeah. like some Beyonce stuff. That is some Beyonce <laughs> stuff. But like we're talking Bharatanatyam and we're talking Carnatic classical, which yeah. is like so intricate. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, she would do all of that. She was, she was amazing. And she was also an incredible cook. She was also, again, very generous. She worked at hospitals and, you know, dedicated her time helping people. Yeah, and she was she was one of my biggest inspirations. She is one of my biggest inspirations. And outside of that, like I think I take inspiration from like I think everybody has something to give me. <laughs> I feel I meet so many people. The world is full of amazing, inspiring people. So is that how you got into singing as your your grandmother? Um actually I think I got into singing because like as a South Indian this is a thing we just do. You're not, I don't think we have an option. We're just like, now you're four years old. Now you have to start learning how to sing classical music or you, or you learn violin or you sing or you learn Bharatanatyam dance or, you know, boys would learn mridangam or like, you know, a percussion, percussion instrument. Um, but not everybody like chooses it as their profession and yes, like dedicates yes. themselves that much. Yes, yeah. So how did that come about? I think that came from my grandmother. She quit performing uh, professionally when she was v- when she was very young. 
um, after she after she had kids and like I, I think right after she got married, she quit. There's a lot of reasons. And now as I'm getting older and I'm doing a lot of research about classical music from that time and the patriarchy in the Indian classical music world, which has been a subject of interest for me in the re- in recent times. So I've been doing research about that and I found out a lot about the time that she was a professional musician. So the society made it very difficult, you know, and women were not really, um, women were not looked at with a lot of respect if you were actually a performer and like dancing on stage and, you know, like Bharat Natyam, for example, today it's one of the most like it's a classical pure classical dance form and it's so respected and it's like cultured and you know that's today but when my grandmother was dancing like Bharatnatyam was almost about to die he was gonna you know it because around that time this was I'm talking about like 1930s only the Devdasis danced and the Devdasis are typically the women who like people would see them as you know sex workers or like you know like just people who are women who are loose or you know like who are dedicated themselves to like entertaining men but that conservatism came from the british that came also from the missionaries that were in india around that time and then the the brahmins also were very conservative so the british their conservative attitudes and the missionaries that kind of really worked well with the Brahmins and so they were like okay cool we're gonna take this and so the women were not really uh, they were not allowed to dance and so only in 1929 or 1930s when they started trying to break through that and uh, Rukmini Devi and like a lot of and, and the Madras Academy they were some of the foremost people who were trying to break into that whole scene and saying, hey, this is a stunning, beautiful art form and it'll die if we don't protect and save it. So my grandmother was a professional artist in those times and that was, that was a difficult time to navigate. So even though she did perform a lot and she did a lot of Bharatanatyam performances as well, eventually I, I think she just, you know, she caved in and, you know, gave up because also she was like, I have kids, I'm going to teach now and I wanted to be a performer and for her in a way also. In the beginning, that's how it all started. It was like, oh, Patti, Patti's grandmother in Tamil. is like, Patti, if you can do it, I'm going to do it for you. Don't worry, I got it. I got your name, so I'm going to do it for you. I'd keep telling her, you know, before she passed. Uh, but, you know, I always dreamt of being a musician and a, and a performer, more a musician since I was a child. I couldn't see a life outside of it. Mm. That's, that's lucky because a lot of people spend their whole lives searching for like what is their thing yeah you know and in my case it's like ooh, I like I get so passionate about so many different things and focusing is my issue so oh I have that too I definitely have that but especially now is a time when people are now beginning to see why that is a very special special thing to have Mm. to be able to do different things Mm. innovation comes from that it doesn't come from doing one thing all the time like you you have to be to have the ability to have you know to have talent and skills and cross disciplines my ex-boyfriend used to say specialization is for insects (laughs) 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 that's funny (laughs) are you able to find 
like a common thread between all the things that you really like and are passionate about? Several. That you can put together? Yeah. Yeah. The and I think it's... common thread is you. Well, totally. Right? You're the common it, thread. The common course. thread is like what I'm passionate about and, you know, like taking the different passions and seeing where they overlap. And uh, in my case, a lot of times it's um, really exploring other cultures and seeing how I can mix mm. them yeah. um, in a way that's uh, like colorful and alive and beautiful and really meaningful, mm. you know? Um, and I love doing that through food, through music, through culture in general. And, um, you know, just seeing like the, the lines between cultures sort of mm. melting Blur. away. Yeah. Mm. And so that's why actually, that's how I ended up in New York is I actually like went to spend a summer in New York in 2004 and dropped dropped out of college to stay because I was like this is the cultural capital of the world I I've always wanted to like basically travel the world as much as possible and explore as many other cultures as I can but I was like but they're all here they're all here yeah that's true when you're in New York they're all there you know and they get every kind of person they get mixed together in a way there that Mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen to the same extent anywhere else I mean it's why the Epicurus and House of Waters and all these things get to exist is because of a melting right. pot like New York, you know. Right. Um, but you know, even though even though the boundaries are blurring and it all kind kind of gets mixed in New York, but I think New York also allows for each of these cultures to maintain its identity. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that's that's necessary. That's also a very beautiful thing. And yeah, well, and that's one of the coolest things about New York is like. I feel like a big part of why New York is so liberal is because you move there and you can't help but have your eyes constantly opened, you know, because I lived in New York for nine years and every time I walk outside there, I marvel at how many languages I hear. I hear more other languages (laughs) than I hear English every single time. Yeah. I mean, which is why New York kind of feels like home to me as well, because, you know, India has so many languages and like just traveling from one place, one state to another would feel like going to a whole different country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I sing with so many different bands. It's just as a singer, it's and plus I, I love the, one of the reasons I moved to New York was to again learn and study all these different forms of music that exists out there, and you know learn from it and like take inspiration from it and bring that into what I do. So my solo project that I'm working on. It's going to take a while, you know, and I'm hoping for it to be a cross-disciplinary performance piece. And, you know, you'll you'll hear all of my influences, everything, you know, everything that has just made me me. And it's just my experiences from traveling and living in different places and getting to know people from around the world. And again, in New York, there's some of the most brilliant musicians from around the world live right there. And, you know, you can bump into them at like the, like a small venue down the street <laughs> and they're so open and warm and welcoming and I sing and collaborate with them and then I, I learn from them and they give you lessons and it's very beautiful like that. And, you know, sometimes we'll exchange lessons. I'll give them a voice lesson or Indian classical uh, lesson and they'll give me another lesson in return and it's like, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I feel like a, a good example of all that is Joe's Pub. Because oh yeah, I love Joe's Pub. I love Joe's Pub. I, I mean, that has been my one of my favorite venues in New York for a really long time. Me too. And w- what I love about it is like it's small and intimate, and the acoustics are great and everything. Yeah. But you can see everything from 
Like I saw Sarah Bareilles there. Like f- to hear wow. Sarah Bareilles in such a small mm-hmm. venue is amazing. But then you'll hear like obscure people that no one's heard of yeah. who just happen to be totally amazing. That curation is really good. We talked about our mutual friend, Bill Bragan, who used to be the director of Joe's Pub. He's also the founder of a well-known world music festival in New York called Global Fest, which brings together cutting-edge bands from all over the world. It's a blast. I've been many times, and Priya has performed there as well. I've discovered a lot of my favorite music at Global Fest, and it's also where I got to know the founders of Afropop, Sean and Banning, who I interviewed for my show last year. Priya and I discussed how incredibly talented Bill Bragan is at curating music. A few years ago, he moved away to become the executive and artistic director of the Arts Center at NYU Abu Dhabi. I think Bill Bragan's brought a lot of wonderful stuff to New York. So, Bill, if you're listening, I'll have to send this to him. (laughs) (laughs) We we love you. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Come back. Yeah. Anyway. Um, So tell me a little bit more about, like, what is the Epichorus? What is women's Raga Massive? The Epichorus was started by Zach Fredman. a really beautiful composer. He writes beautiful melodies. He's a very good oud player. Insane oud player. Yeah, yeah, and so talented. And he's just beautiful heart. And a really lovely rabbi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very. Yeah, there's only one of his kind in New York. Definitely. Mm-hmm. In the world. I, I just, he's such a beautiful songwriter. And um, Max actually introduced me to Zach saying, hey, you guys should, I don't know what's going to happen, but you should do something together. And at that point, they were like, Zach was like, wait, but I play Middle Eastern music. I play Oud, you're, you're, you, you sing Indian classical music. I don't know. And all like the, you know, the work that he does, a lot of it is in, is in Hebrew. And, you know, so, and I was like, well, I, I can sing in Hebrew. <laughs> He's like, do you speak Hebrew? I was like, nope, but I can learn. And I love learning languages. So yeah. How many languages do you sing in? Like five? I, I sing in, I think about 18 oh my God. or something. But, you know, like, I, I don't speak all of those. Uh, I speak maybe seven or eight of those. Uh, fluently, maybe four. That's And impressive. conversationally, like, seven or eight. Uh, and it comes back when I start, start speaking with someone. And a lot of the others I can just, like... I, I actually write out... So the Hebrew script that I sing with the Epicurus, I write out in... Uh, in, in the Devnagri script and Whoa. I've actually I'm working on creating my own script actually and I have I've been working on it for a while so I use <laughs> I use di- yeah I use diuretics and like a combination of the Latin and um, and the Devnagri script um, to be able to pronounce any language so it's still it's still in the works but so far uh all the languages that I've been singing in, it's helped. It's really been very useful. I'm able to pronounce the words as close to original as possible. And how I know this is because when I'm done with the gig, sometimes I'll have the audience come up to me and start speaking in that language, like <laughs> very fluently. And as you're if, like, um, I'm like, I didn't understand a word of what you yeah. said. They're like, but but you 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 sounded so authentic. You sounded like you speak it really well. And I was like, nope, I just. And then I show them my script and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) It's like your own secret language. Um, Well, but you were talking about the other night of like, when it comes to music, it doesn't matter if you understand the words. It's the feeling. It's it's the magic that it creates and how it moves you. Definitely. I mean, words have, words are heavy. 
Words have a lot of meaning, lyrics, poetry, it's beautiful. Um, so I feel like, yes, you, in a way, if you don't understand the lyrics, it could feel like you're, you're, you know, it's taking away something from the song. But I also think that it, it could add something, you know, because then you interpret what you're listening to in your own way. And, you know, also, again, lyrics are so poetic. These words, they express emotion even just by the sound of it, which is why I love language. Every language has... All the words carry so many emotions and the way they, like, you know, this, the, the melody which, with how they're spoken itself tells you something, mm. right? Uh, certain words can be harsh and, like, certain words can be soft and, like, it depends. Like, I think it just conveys the meaning just and the emotion even by just the sound of it, even if you don't understand the meaning of the word. Well, they're, like, tools that you're they're utilizing. Tools, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, uh, I, for example, sometimes in Indian classical music, I'll just... I'm singing the the names of the notes, which is called sargam, and uh, it doesn't need lyrics. And uh, sometimes we're just singing an alap, which is just like ahs and oohs, and you don't really need lyrics either. So it, yeah, it depends on how you want to listen to a song, I guess. And um, I enjoy listening to music that I don't understand the language for also. Mm-hmm. You see, language is, it's just a tool for communication. Uh, yes, words are heavy. Poetry is beautiful. You can express so much with very little, and there's a beauty. That's it's an art form by itself. Language is an art form, mm. uh, but also sometimes you can communicate without any words. So you know, I really feel like music is actually a form of magic. <laughs> uh, honestly, I like Agreed. really feel I that way. Never argue that. Yes. Well, I mean, with with the magnitude to which it is able to move people. You know, the other night when you were performing here, I felt it so much. And then my friend Michelle came up to me afterwards and she was like, I was moved to tears. Multiple people said similar things, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I think intention plays a very big part in music. A lot of my study has been in Indian classical music. And that study has taught me about how every single note that comes out of you has to be intentional. It has to have purpose. Even the silence has purpose. So that has to be intentional. Just don't, it shouldn't just like, you're not like vomiting stuff. It has to be very intentional. And any classical music focuses a lot on that stuff because it's entirely 100% improvised. So you can't really, you, you have to be very, very present. You have to be incredibly in the moment. And that's why it's so introspective. Like, you know, people who are listening to it, even if you don't know how Indian classical music works, it's a very intellectual form of music. But at the same time, when you're listening to it, even if you don't know that, you feel the spiritual, you, you get that vibe. It's a very introspective vibe. You want to like close your eyes and just be in the moment, right? And that whole music, because of the improvised nature of the music, and it forces you to be in the moment, not just the, like the artist has to be in the moment, right? And that moment will never come back again, which is beautiful because... You'll never be able to perform the same thing twice because none of it is memorized. None of it is, there's no notation for this stuff. It sounds like it's like kind of its own form of spiritual practice. It is. Yeah. It is. It's definitely my spiritual practice. Mm. It's just, it's, it's meditative. It, and it really, a lot of it is, is about dropping your ego because mm. music is always, this is always going to be bigger. And the more ego that comes in the way, my, my, what I'm singing sounds worse. 
like, oh, yeah. crap, yeah. I need to fix that. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of how I've approached music comes from my, from whatever I've learned in any classical music. And the idea of being very intentional is important. And I know several different cultures do that in their styles of music as well. But intention really, it really passes on. So, you know, when I'm singing and I, and there's an audience that I can connect to and they're looking at me and I can, you know, I, I, I want them to feel a certain way. So I just, you know, I, I try and, I try and have that in my heart when I'm singing every note. I've noticed when you're singing, I mean, I've noticed how, how present you are like the whole time, but also I feel like there are these little moments where you just like, there's this expansiveness where you're like so in it, you know, <laughs> like it's so hard to explain like what I'm, what I'm seeing in in these moments, but do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. And I've, I lost sometimes, just lose myself. Like, yeah. Well, I feel like sometimes it's it's the moments where you're singing really softly. Hmm. Not not that's always, but that's yeah. that's like where I've felt it the most. Hmm. You know, like there's there's this like kind of tenderness and sweetness, but like power to it at the same time, hmm. which is like an interesting balance to strike. You know, um, but I I was wondering if you could speak to like. In, in those moments where you're really transcending and just letting go and feeling it, what is that like? I mean, I know it's, it's like beyond words to try and describe it, but what, what's happening for you in those moments? Those moments that you're talking about, I think those are, those are also, I do, I know exactly what you're talking about because I get there at several points in time. I wish I could be there the whole time and that's what I'm hoping for, um, you know, those moments, I'm just so connected to myself. And I just, I'm, I'm you know, it's, I become a vessel. I'm not even there. It's not me who's doing the singing. It's just, it's just happening through me. And that's really an incredible moment for me. Also, I feel, I feel so full and alive and I also feel so grateful and humbled because it's not me. <laughs> you know? I'm getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about it because, uh, you know, I've, I've witnessed you in those moments and, it, you know, it like what you're describing really comes through. Like, and I feel like those of us who are watching are basically just sitting there kind of in awe of whatever it is that's <laughs> coming through, you know. Oh, I'm grateful. Yeah. yeah. Playing here was so beautiful. Like one of the things that re I really enjoyed was not having... I wasn't wearing my footwear. I was, you know, bare feet. That helped me stay grounded. I also liked that there was no stage. That really takes away that separation from the audience and you. So you're, you're just one. And I could feel what was coming back to me. You know, I'm looking at everyone that's right in front of me, like, just right there. You know, it, when you're doing something and you immediately see how it's affecting someone... Like, it really inspires you to, to keep doing that, you know? That was it. That was human connection. Yep, just human to you human. You would not... How could I have that on Facebook? <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Cannot have that on Facebook. Speaking of human connection, um, so tell me about Max. How did, how did you guys meet? You know, what's, what's the story there? Um, so th this is really funny. Max uh, 
was actually studying this in India. This was around 2010 or 2011. He got a grant uh, to study in India with uh, Pandit Shukumar Sharma. So he was there living in Bombay for two years. But when he was living there, I was actually living in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and, you know, I was, I was singing with uh, future man Roy Wooten in that whole scene in Nashville. And so I was, I was there and I was going back and forth. I also had a job in London, so I just keep going back and forth. So one of the times that I was visiting Bombay, uh, I met Max at this party. Uh, this guy who was really interested in like dating me, he was like, mm. so he's like, come, come to this party, come to this party. And uh, so I, you know, I was like, okay, is someone playing? What's happening there? I didn't, I didn't really want to go. And he was like, oh, there might be music. There might be a jam session. And I was like, hmm, who's going to play? <laughs> and he was like, so he's like, I don't know. And then he sends me Max's website or something. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds interesting. I'll come. So I go there and Max shows up without an instrument and I was like, oh, okay, there's no jam session. But we chatted then and there was this instant connection. But yeah, it was mostly, it was, we talked about music and we had this deep musical connection immediately because he talked about the artists that I really look up to and I talked about Indian classical music and he w he'd been studying Indian classical music and he was talking about introspection. Like our first conversation became so deep about, it was all about introspection. And I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so the week after we connected and we, we had a jam session and that was beautiful. And that connection, like to have that musical connection was again, just really, really like, you know, I felt like I knew him even though we hadn't spent any time together. And then I left, I went back to Nashville and months later, many months later, in fact, a year later, I was coming back to India and uh, I had actually a couple of months after I came back to India, I didn't really, I didn't remember he was still there. I had forgotten about that. And then I suddenly remembered, I was like, oh, Max is here. And I was trying to get back to all my music connections in Bombay. And I was like, oh, I should give him a shout. And when I called Max, he was actually going back, moving back to New York. And we had one week and I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Okay, so that's, so that we spent that week together going to concerts, playing more music. And um, so we're like, wow, there, I think there's, there's something here, but you're leaving. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, this could be anything. This could be a beautiful friendship. So, so he left. We stayed in touch. We would talk every day on Skype, you know. <laughs> and um, again, it was all about very deep introspections of life and just wanting to be a better person and trying to find the tools to call ourselves out on our bullshit. Mm. That's, I feel like that's the most important thing to recognize our own bullshit. <laughs> so really, yeah, so we were trying, we were on that process and like, you know, that's how we, we became best friends. And um, three or four months after chatting on Skype like that, he was one day, he's like, he had just left, you know, he's like, okay, I'm coming to Bombay to see you. And I was like, Hmm. Okay. Um, I was like, I don't, I don't expect anything. You know, he's like, no, 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 I'm not expecting anything to come out of this, but I don't want to, I don't want to regret that I didn't try. You know, I just want to know what this is. And if he, if this turns out to be just the most incredible friendship, I would be so happy with that. I was like, okay, that's, that's really sweet. <laughs> so he showed up uh, in Bombay and we spent 
actually we traveled to a couple of national parks. I love wildlife and all my holidays are typically national parks or just jungles, wildlife, mountains. So I took him to a couple of wildlife sanctuaries and national parks in, in India. We saw tigers and elephants and he was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so we'd play music and in the jungle, it was beautiful. And that's, and he came back. So we had a two and a half year long distance relationship. And then eventually I moved. I was coming out of another like long distance relationship and I was like, okay, I can't. I just, no more long distance relationship if this has to work. We have to be in the same city. Also, the fact that he lived in New York made a lot of sense because I had been wanting to move to New York for music. So it just made sense. I was like, okay, so I'll move to New York and I'll have, I'll have you also to be there, you know. Um, so he was there and for the first couple of years, we, you know, we just tried to figure out what it, what's going on. How do we work this in the same city? We both were, you know, we didn't want to put any pressure on each other. And I wanted to make sure that I also have my own individual life. I didn't want to be dependent uh, on anyone. So yeah, it just, it was, he's so easy. He's just the kindest, the kindest, sweetest person. And yeah, you, I mean, you, that dulcimer, <laughs> it sounds so sweet. He's just, he really is like that. <laughs> he's, he's my best friend. He's my collaborator. He's my teacher. He's, he's my student. All of that. It's just a really beautiful, full relationship. And yeah, we got married two years ago. Where did you do that? Uh, we got married in Bombay. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I feel like, um, you know, just having witnessed you guys making music together in a couple of different settings, you know, with mm-hmm. the Epichorus yeah. here with House of Waters, um, like, it's like, not just a marriage of two people, it's a marriage of sound that is making more of that the magic that I was talking about, you know. There's something palpable there that's really special. I mean, f- first of all, how many people in the U.S. and most parts of the world get to hear traditional Indian singing, mm-hmm. much less a hammered dulcimer, dulcimer. <laughs> which is like such an obscure <laughs> right. instrument, and the two together right. is right. like just yeah. mesmerizingly beautiful, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. So yeah. Also, you know, his... He's traveled so much, like it helps, because I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, connect that deeply with someone who hasn't traveled and hasn't experienced and lived, you know, immersed themselves in different cultures. And he has, he's done that. He lived in Senegal for six to seven years. He moved to Bombay to study this music. So he really practices immersion, which to me is very important. And, um, and yeah, so he's like, he's like a child of the world and I feel that way too. So it, yeah. And his, it it just made sense. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you're able to hear that in our music. I love history, I love knowing how something came to be. You learn so much from just knowing that journey. Because like, for example, I'm talking to you, I wanna know 
what made you you? Because without that aspect, I can gauge you right now, but that wouldn't be entirely accurate because there's so many layers of you that I would completely miss. And all those subtleties and the things that you don't talk about, the things that you know you don't show on your face, all of those things I wouldn't know unless I knew your stories and I knew your entire life. And in that same way, I feel like going back in time, going back years in time, centuries, to our forefathers, our foremothers, it's so important because what they learned and what they tried to pass on is very important. They did that with good intention, you know, and they wanted the further generations to learn from it. And it's stupid to make the same mistakes again and again and again, right? But So there's a lot of learning there, but there's also just that connection with with humans from a different time that makes you feel like, wow, we're actually the same. Like there's something beautiful about knowing that we've we've been here for thousands of years and like we're going to be here for a long time. And that knowledge, it helps me understand uh, sometimes the futility of things that I, you know, that I worry about. It, it helps me keep things real in a lot of ways. I'm like, you know, it's just fine. Like, my parents did this. My grandparents did this. Their parents did this. We all have different sets of challenges, of course. We have completely different lives, completely different journeys. But again, like, there's something to be said about how in that journey there's such a similar struggle for, for peace this is, or the, a quest for peace or a quest for just human connection. There's this quest for community. There's this quest for finding purpose and meaning in life. I want to give the listeners a taste of a, a couple of the songs that you sang the other night, but I'd love it if you could explain a little bit about them starting particularly with there was a a love song that you sang towards the end Mm. that is just so sweet. So that's actually a composition that was written 150 years ago, really old composition. And it's based on this rock called Kamaj. It's a beautiful, again, poetry doesn't translate very well from different languages. I'll I'll do my best in trying to translate just a few lines of it. Like, uh, there's one part that goes, Mura Seya Muse Bolena. It's sort of a talking about lovers, and one of the lovers is is upset with the other. And it's talk they're talking about missing and longing for the other lover and saying, Hey, just uh, they're not talking you're not talking to me. But when you're not talking to me, my playground is barren. Like I don't feel my feelings feel empty. It's talking about how much uh, they long for them to to come back. <laughs> um, I could translate line for line by line, but you know. What language yeah. is it? It's it's in Hindi, mm. but it's like in an older version of Hindi, mm. more poetic, mm. Urdu influenced Hindi. Savanabito Jai Biharva. It's like um, the monsoon. The monsoon is now about to leave. It's it's coming. It's going. I gotta sing this to remember the words. Savan bi to jai bihariva man mera gabra 
सो गए परदेस पिया तुम ऐसो गए परदेस पिया तुम इज यू यू लेफ्ट होम फॉर फॉरन लैंड चैन हमें नहीं हमें इज लाइक आई डोंट फाइन पीस एनी मोर मुसे बोले ना माई लवर डजन टॉक टू मी लाख जतन कर लाख जतन कर मोरा से मुसे बोले ना सो या एज मच एज आई ट्राई एंड लॉन्ग फॉर यू एंड प्रे फॉर यू आई एम कॉन्स्टेंटली लाइक जस्ट होपिंग होपिंग अगेंस्ट होप that you will come back but you don't even talk to me mora sayamu se again talking about language a lot of people came up to me and told me that that I, you know i did tell them it was a love song i don't i think even if i didn't tell them it was a love song i think they would have still felt the same emotions mm. and they came came up to me and said that that really moved them mm. and even though they didn't know what, <laughs> what the hell i was talking about it really moved them mm. so yeah. yeah um so what's your favorite song that you do with uh, the epicorus or a favorite. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh I love Azlat that I did the other other night. Azlat was actually written by Zach Fredman. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, what a beautiful composition. It just mm-hmm. takes me back like to it feels like it's an Aramaic and it feels like it's a story from thousands of years ago and there's something so profound about about the the lyrics and um lyrics are written by Israel Najara and I would translate it for you but I think it would be better if Zach does that <laughs> um but it is about in short it's about it's it's a hypothetical situation uh where um Moses has died and Moses's mother Elchavet uh is looking for Moses and um so in a way it's also about a mother losing her child and so yeah it's, it's a very powerful very powerful moving piece and just the the composition itself just takes you back in time like when i'm singing it i feel like i have just transported to several thousand years ago <laughs> so, yeah
So one thing that we haven't talked about much yet is your racing and your life as an athlete. Do, do you want to just tell us just a little bit about like how you got into that? And Sure. I was always into sports since I was a kid. Thank God, because it saved, it saved me in so many ways. Uh, it became my, my, my go-to for everything. Whenever I was angry, sad, happy, upset, everything. And also the work that we, we do, I, I hadn't realized that it is dramatic. <laughs> so having, having children that you love die in your arms is not an easy thing. And I'm so glad that I, had, I have music and I have sports to like just, you know, just some form of expression. Uh, expression. Yeah. So I was, as a kid, I was a, I was a competitive swimmer. I won, in fact, as a child, outside of being a singer, I wanted to be an Olympic athlete. That was my dream. So like every day I had to be involved in some form of some sport or the other. I played cricket, I played badminton, I played squash, which is racquetball here, and every type of sport. And I was, if I may say so myself, I was pretty good at it. <laughs> so, um, in 2007... Like I, I think I was. It was a really difficult year for me. I was going through a lot, and uh, not just that, but I was also, I was in some form of rut. I needed more. I needed something bigger in my life. I needed, for some reason, everything felt like it was, it was. You know, I needed more uh, challenges. I needed to challenge my brain, my mind. I needed to figure out what the corners of my mind were, and like, what is this? Where? How? Like, who am I? <laughs> so pretty much that was it. And um, around that time, I met this, uh, this person called Ram, who had just run 160 miles in the Gobi Desert. It was a self-supported race. So he called me and I was like, what? <laughs> 160 <laughs> what? So um, that's 250 kilometers. I was like, holy crap, that's a lot. And I was like, wait, Ram, how how are you alive? Like, what are you doing? How you just ran this two days ago. And he sounded so joyful about that. He was, and he's very good at, he's one of those guys. Like he can, if he talks to you, he'll make, he'll get you to run in like a week. Uh, So, you know, we started talking about that and just suddenly I was like, wow, I think that's exactly what I need to do. I need to challenge myself. I need, I need to push all of my boundaries. I need to figure out what this means for me. What are, just who am I? What's happening in my brain? What am I capable of? So within that 10-minute conversation, I signed up for my first ultra marathon. It was my first race ever. I do not advise anyone to do that. But my first race was a 100-mile race in the Himalayas. It is considered to be one of the most difficult, challenging endurance races in the world. Uh, people almost have died trying this race. I almost died doing, running it first time. So yeah, I had like four and a half months to train for it. And (laughs) I've always wanted to go to the Himalayas. Like that's my, I feel like I belong there. So I was like, that's it. That's where I'm going. And my dream was to climb Everest. It's not a dream anymore, but it used to be. So I thought this would be a great way to just go to the Himalayas and like just be there and and find my home there. So I trained for it and... uh, ran that and it changed my whole life. Uh, I finished the race, which was amazing. Uh, I became the first Indian woman, the youngest woman, youngest person to run the race and all of that, which I found very strange because I was like, that makes no sense. I'm not 
that good of an athlete <laughs> because there's way better athletes in India. And I was like, how could I be the first person to do this? Like, it makes no sense. Um, and also just that experience of discovering myself doing that. Like this race, start, it starts at 6,000 feet, goes up to 12,000 feet and back. And you're running like through the most remote locations. Basically, it's exactly on the border of India and Nepal. It's extreme. So like I was running in, and this was in November, so I'm running in like negative 18, negative 20 degree temperatures with unobstructed winds from Everest, Lhotse, Makalu, Kanchanjunga, four of the world's tallest peaks. And, you know, you can't carry too much gear either, so I'm very not wearing much. So it's like you're really fighting a lot of things. So the distance becomes a very small, small challenge. All the other things are the big challenges. And what it, what it taught me, actually, this is also very cool. I took a little recorder with me. I'm so glad I did that because uh, I wanted to make notes of my thought process while I was doing that. I wanted to see how many times I want to give up or if I do give up or what my process is. And I wanted to just learn myself. And it was very interesting because like after the first three kilometers, I'm like crying because I had already, it's high altitude. I didn't know how, like I was training for it, but I didn't realize it would hit me so bad. I was like on the side, a lot of us were on the side of the road throwing up uh, within the first kilometer or two. So at the end of three kilometers, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I have another 157 kilometers to go, and like I have to go up <laughs> to 12,000 feet. Holy crap. So, so from then on, just that experience taught me. I wasn't even teaching myself. It was just that, just that process forced me to stop thinking of the finish line, because at the beginning, it was all about finish line, finish line, finish line. How do I get there? Because like, it's important to be goal-oriented, yes. But that was in the training. That was the goal-oriented part. But when I was at the race, if I approached it like that, I would not get there. So then I slowly started thinking about, okay, how do I get to that day's finish line? Then it became about, okay, forget that. <laughs> if I think that far, I'm going to get overwhelmed and I'm not going to make it. Then I started thinking about, okay, how do I just get to the next aid station? Eventually, it came down to how do I just put one foot in front of the other? And that was it. I feel like that everything you just said is a really good metaphor for life. It was. That's exactly what happened. Like I, I think I lived an entire lifetime because I went through every type of emotion, and you know, I, I pushed my body beyond. Like even if you were incredibly well trained, you, you know, you can't train really for altitude. You just don't know how it's going to affect you or th that terrain. Himalayan terrain is like nothing else. I've ever experienced before. You have 70 degree inclines and it's crazy and there's cobblestones everywhere and it's, the weather is ruthless. I had hypothermia, but if I look up, I would just see the most beautiful, beautiful, divine, just the most stunning mountains. And it would just keep reminding me of why I was there. And then, you know, another thing that I really liked was a part of the race would run through a Himalayan national park and I'd hear these birds every now and then sing like you know there's one bird that had this specific I'm going to try doing that oh. it would do that <laughs> so I just like keep looking out for that bird and so I you know I started making friends with little things that just kept me going and then there'd be like a little cloud just hanging 
and I want to run through that cloud. So it just, that experience just like made me realize that, you know, the finish line is not an important thing at all. It's just right now. What I do right now is all that matters. I've always been very interested in the lives of Sherpas and because the Himalayas has always felt like home to me. And that, during that race, I saw how they were being exploited. This is common knowledge that Sherpas are exploited by... Uh, well, and misunderstood. You know, like most people hear the word Sherpa and they think it's like a profession. Yeah, they don't, no. like most people on earth don't know, no, that's an ethnic group, you yeah, know. It's just, it's just the, a people. Basically, yeah. like on the border of uh, Nepal and Tibet, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he and was, India and Nepal, basically yeah. just the people who live in the Himalayas. Mm. And, and they're some of the most beautiful human beings I've ever come across. And superhuman. Superhuman. Like genetically, their lungs are bigger. They're the most hardworking people I've ever come across. And like they just, and they're so humble about it all. You know, it's, it's amazing. They just amazed me. And I wanted to do something for them because, you know, they, we need them to take care of the mountains. The Himalayas are being trashed, which is why I earlier said that I want to climb Everest. Now I don't want to do it anymore. If I do, I want to go just to clean the mountain because it is trashed, mm. not only with dead bodies, but it's also trashed with just shit and crap that people have left behind because everyone's trying to go to the top and it's this, it's this crazy ego thing. Yeah, It's entirely an ego thing now. It's like... And a lot of, like, they're just companies that, you know, will take you. Like, oh, how much money? You got $50,000? I'll take you to the top, to the summit of Everest. Mm. Uh, you don't have to even have climbing experience sometimes. And it's this thing everyone wants to put on their checklist that, oh, I climbed Everest. And the actual work that's being done is by the Sherpas, and they get paid little to nothing for putting their entire lives in danger for running this whole thing. Mm. And... The, all of these big companies that, you know, adventure companies and climbing companies that organize these expeditions, uh, they're the ones who take all the money and they trash the place and there's no respect for the mountains. Bring back all your crap, don't leave it on the mountain, yeah. you know? Uh, so that's one of, another reason also, like the communities that were, the, the tiny little three, four house villages that we would, you know, my race would run through, like, I wanted to be able to uh, bring some money to them also. So I just, and I wanted basically to inspire more women to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2007, when I started running ultramarathons in India, I don't, I knew like two other people who, had, who knew what ultramarathons were. Everybody else was making fun of me. Mm. They would lay bets on how I would not finish and things like that and um, yeah running on the streets was not safe for me and it was really against all odds for me to just train for this whole thing and I wanted to change that and I wanted to have other people have this experience because you know once you have this experience nothing feels impossible anymore it just feels like you can you, re, you redefine everything for yourself and so which is why I started this company called the Wind Chasers and uh, it's it's a social and enterprise and uh, because of Wind Chasers, I've been, we've been able to support so many Sherpa families and pay them way more than any of these other expeditions would so that, you know, they don't have to do life-threatening work. They can stay with their families. And we're trying to bring education to the kids who live in that area as, and, you know, solar panels, that kind of stuff. But also, at the same time, have runners experience 
this most this incredible thing and clean up the mountain, raise awareness, environmental awareness, and all of that. So yeah, Winch, that's how Winchasers was started. Also a selfish reason because I just want to be in the Himalayas. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to be there. Any excuse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of intense, scary stuff going on in the world right now, you know. And I'm sure you probably have those moments like I do, like we all do, of like, oh my God, this is like, how are we going to turn this around? There's so much bad stuff going on. Um, in those moments, what gives you solace or hope? What do you turn to for that? I believe humans are intrinsically good. And I believe that we are all trying like naturally we we want to think positive no one wants to think the worst for yourself for the world like even though we do think we feel like it's going there we always wake up wanting for this to be a good day for ourselves so I, yeah i do believe that humans want to think positively and want a more positive experience in life it's the only thing that gives me some form of peace, knowing that maybe it's just a rough time at some point when this passes, you know. Uh, and this, you know, it's the ebb and flow. It is the ebb and flow. Um, some, you know, there's also this whole concept. It could be Kalyug, but whatever it is, it's 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 the it's the acceptance of what it is. And I definitely believe that there's so like there's more good people in the world. There's so many good people in the world and the good people are going to make this world a better well, place. <laughs> especially if we have magical music to fuel the, the resistance to the patriarchy. Oh, oh my God, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, yeah, you know, women are finally coming out of the woods and uh, hopefully we'll bring this energy that is needed, is so necessary. I didn't know there was a term for this, Ecofeminism, but I, you know, I really believe that there's something to be said about the violence towards the planet and towards women, towards the feminine. In general, you know, the masculine energy tends to naturally go towards, like, it's, you know, you go to war, it's the men who go to war, it's like, it's a little, it's aggressive, uh, but every person has both, right? We all have both energies, right? And it's important to accept that and allow for them both to coexist so that we can have this balance. And, you know, females, are, they nurture, right? So we have the nurturing um, ability, and that's, that's what women it's do. It's so important. It's so important. So right now the planet needs that. We need nurture. We need yeah. that energy because it's been the other way for so long. It's not, this is not to say that we don't need the men at all. We, we both, we need each other. We need all kinds of people. We need queer, we need, we need no genders, we need genders, we need all of this, all of us to just be whoever we want to be and coexist and just, and you know, find that balance. Uh, but whatever it is, we just need some, something that is more nurturing. Yeah. So what gifts has music brought to your life? Wow. I mean, that's my way of, that's, that's my spiritual practice. I feel like that's my 
for lack of a better word, religion, you know, it's, it's what teaches me about how to see the world, about how to, how to be a better human being, about how to work through my egos and, you know, all of that stuff. And yeah, so, and it's also, it's so healing. It just is, it's my, it's my home. It's the only thing that I recognize as, as a safe place. You're, you're lucky because you have um, such quality outlets for expressing yourself and for catharsis through both music and, you know, athleticism. Yeah, I'm grateful. But, you know, it's available to everyone. Mm. And not just music. Every art form is, is like that. I just have, you know, this is music for me. It could be painting for someone else. It could be poetry for someone else. It could be literally anything. You know... I, my, my guru always tells me that it doesn't matter what you do, like even if you're just raking leaves, or you're doing the dishes, do it with such, with such beauty, do it with such, like, with, like f- give it all, and you'll find poetry in that, you'll find the peace in that, because that's, that's what it is, you know? <laughs> so I think... I'm definitely grateful that I have music and, and, you know, sports and all of the different outlets that I have. But I think we all have those choices. It's just available. It's there. Thank you for listening to A Show of Hearts. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe in iTunes and share it with your favorite people. Visit our website, ashowofhearts.com, where you can sign up for emails and explore all our episodes in depth. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at A Show of Hearts. Remember to choose courage, even when it's scary, and join me in igniting the world with our hearts.